Hello and welcome to episode 8, series 1, episode 8 of the Radical Simple Living podcast. Uh, If you're a first-time listener, I'm very pleased to welcome you. If you've listened to some of my other podcasts, I'm glad you're back and I hope we can continue to uh, give you information you find helpful. Now, this week, I want to talk about something that will either upset you or will delight you. I'm going to use a word right at the beginning of this. I'm going to use the word homesteading. Now, the reason homesteading upsets people is because of the idea we have in our head of what homesteading actually means. And where do these ideas come from? Well, a lot of them come from things like Little House in the Prairie. We keep returning to those books because they're part of almost everybody's childhood, I think. And I've said before that almost everyone I've ever met who has an interest in simple living... Uh, that interest can often be traced back to what they were feeling when they read those books, or maybe they read those books as a as a child and forgot about them. And when you have children yourself, you reread them. And uh, I've, I've got five children, and I've read them all the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. And if I had any more, which I don't think is going to happen, I would read them to them as well. I plan to read them to grandchildren because they're wonderful works of literature. But they give an idea of homesteading that is uh, certainly um, late, mid to late 19th century American view of homesteading. And the word means something different today. And I started, as you know, these podcasts are pretty free form. I don't have any scripts. I have a few words jotted down here on a piece of paper. But I did do some preparation this week, really. And that I went to look at definitions of homesteading in dictionaries. And I have to say I didn't agree with any of them. Partly because they didn't agree with each other. They had some very bland ideas like a house with a bit of land attached to it. Or some of them uh, from the States had the idea that there is a legal uh, meaning of the word homesteading in many states of the US. Now, there may well be a legal definition of homesteading, but today I want to give you a definition, and then I'm going to ask you to decide two things. One, are you a homesteader already? Or B, if you're not a homesteader already, would you like to become one? Now, if we go back to Little House on the Prairie for one minute, and think about the setup they had. Now, you remember that the books go from one place to another, various times in in Laura Ingalls Wilder's youth and normally it involves either Pa building a house, a shack, nothing too ornate, nothing too impressive, just a shack. Um, It usually had a loft space where the girls slept and downstairs is where Ma and Pa slept in what would have been the, the only room in the house downstairs. Kitchen, living room, bedroom, everything. And we know that Pa then tried to help them stay alive by doing jobs outside the house. And Ma decided to, or didn't decide, but it was possibly thrust upon her that she did the jobs inside the house mainly. Now, these jobs would have been rearing animals. They would have been growing crops. They would have been cooking, bottling, pickling, making clothing, 
making butter. Um, pa would have been involved in trapping and fur production and logging to some extent. So all these activities went on in and around the house. And while we're on the subject of Ma and Pa, Ma and Pa didn't have really much to say between each other because remember we're listening to what Laura remembers of being a little girl of the conversations between them. So what did Ma and Pa say to each other when the girls were in bed at night? Well, we, we, we don't know, but we do glean a little bit about their personality. Pa, we know, is a liberal-minded man. I know he has a few issues, and I know that we would look back in terms of political correctness and say Pa wasn't always politically correct. But he was a liberal-minded man, and he did give people the benefit of the doubt and he was willing to trust people and he was willing to open up to people and offer the hand of friendship. Ma on the other hand was much more reserved. She was judgmental. She would quite often have fixed ideas about people, be they Native Americans or, or, or what have you. She would have ideas about what they would be like without really getting involved with them. So I think most people come away with the idea that Ma was a bit intolerant and Pa was a bit tolerant. When we do hear from Pa, a lot of those things are conversations he has with Laura. When he comes over as kind and helpful and a really wonderful father, I think, and a model for fathers everywhere. But he does get worn out. We, if you read The Long Winter, he gets worn out as time goes on. And he says this, this is a direct... Um, wording that comes from one of the novels in his mouth. I think it is a long winter, actually. He says this. These times are too progressive. Everything has changed too fast. Railroads and telegraphs and kerosene and coal stoves. They're good to have, but the trouble is folks get to depend on them. End of quote. So we get this idea that the par is actually fairly conservative, now, no cat arguments, please. You too? Hey, stop it. Right, forgive me. Um, nobody is thinking that, that, that he's a, a radical. He's a conservative man. He thinks that there are all kinds of changes coming in society and not all of those changes are good. And we might feel that way too. We wouldn't talk about telegraphs and kerosene, but we might say things like the internet is too important or we might say things that automation has gone too far or we might be saying things like nobody does things for themselves anymore. So these ideas are still with us. But we do remember Pa for being a great homesteading man who was prepared to turn his hand to everything. And this is where we're going to work and home in on our definition of homesteading. We might also object to the word homesteading, not because of these old literary homesteads that we remember from Little House on the Prairie and other such books, but also from some of the modern homesteaders that exist. There's, there's lots of them there. They do podcasts, they have blogs, they do YouTube channels. Some of the most famous ones, I mean, the most famous one of all is, is Jill Winger, who I have nothing but good words for. I think she does a marvellous job there. And I certainly listen to her podcasts and I certainly read her blogs and I enjoy every one of them. Uh, there's also people like Joel Salatin who might 
consider himself more of a farmer than a homesteader, but certainly he's very influential in the homesteading movement and has written books and said a great deal about homesteading and how he wishes more people were involved in it. There's also other people like Rory Feek, who uh, was a musician turned homesteader uh, and uh, again does some, some good work on publicising that idea. Now, I think for many of the rest of us, particularly those people in Europe who come across these people, these ideas might go through our head. Yeah, it's easy for them because in America, especially where they live in the West, there is land available and you can rent land, you can buy land, you can set up a homestead and you can do things because in America, the land of the free, if you like, it's... Uh, still a country where you can do this. You can still be a pioneer. You can still set up. Yes, you need money. Yes, you need organisation. It's still a lot easier to do than it is in Europe. But I'd like to break away from the idea that you do need a vast amount of land to be a homesteader, or you do need a house a long way away from anywhere. My argument is that you can be a homesteader almost anywhere. And Here's my definition, then, of what a homesteader is. Let's not beat about the bush anymore. Let's go for it. My definition of a homesteader is this. It's somebody who lives in a home. They may own it or they may rent it. They may have built it themselves or they may have had it built for them. Or in my case, it may be an old house that you're living in that you've purchased. And as well as living in that house, they also use that house and the land attached to that house, if there is any, to help them live. And to help them live, I mean by providing services and goods and all kinds of things that they need for themselves. Now, what could they do? Well, that could involve the growing of food. Now, I know some of you without land think the growing of food is difficult, and I do intend to spend a fair bit of time on explaining how you can do that. But growing food, fruit, vegetable, herbs, all can be grown in your land. And by growing them, you don't have to buy them. So homesteading would involve producing food, not primarily to sell, but to subsidise your family's diet and to provide them with food. If you're really lucky, you might provide a lot of your family's food by growing it yourself. But most of us uh, just trying to produce as much good food as we can. So you may be doing that. You may be doing carpentry and building. You may be building your own outhouses. You may be adapting your house. You may be using your carpentry skills to build doors and window frames to make furniture and to build these in your workshop and use them in your home. Now, it might be very fine and wonderful carpentry, but you might also just be involved in knocking nails in bits of wood to make things like raised beds or to make things like decking outside so you can sit outside and watch your crops grow. All of those are carpentry in the broadest sense of the word and they're all part of what homesteading is all about. Now, any kind of homesteader is going to be involved in cooking. Now, by cooking, I don't mean buying food from the supermarket. Oh, a cat. I've got a pause to let a cat out here. OK, all of us need to buy food from the supermarket. But some of us are buying raw materials. Some of us are buying sacks of rice, bags of lentils, 
cooking oil, and others of us are buying ready-made meals, which they microwave and eat. Now, the ready-made meals are something that simple living is trying to get away from. In adopting an idea of simple living, you're really saying you should be cooking your own food from scratch wherever possible. Now, that means going to the supermarket and buying, uh, if you have to buy vegetables, buying vegetables in their natural state or as close to their natural state as you can get them and coming home and preparing them and cooking them yourself. Now, obviously, um, you may not be able to achieve this every day. Your workload, your travel, all the other things you may do, may sometimes you've got to get something in. You've got to get a prepared meal. But most of the time, you should be able to produce home-cooked food from raw ingredients in your house if you're adopting the idea of simple living. Because simple living has a lot to do with what you eat and how you prepare what you eat. And as a homesteader, especially if you're growing vegetables, you'll want to be preserving vegetables. You'll be wanting to, and fruit and herbs, you'll be wanting to dry. Dried herbs can be stored over winter. And although they're never as good as fresh herbs, they're useful. With one exception, bay leaves are much better dried than they are fresh. Um, you will want to preserve fruit if you've got lots of apples or pears. You'll want to find some way of not letting them waste, but preserving them for the winter months and for the next spring. You may want to make jams and jellies from soft fruit. And some of the fruit you might not be growing. You might be foraging for it in the woodlands and hedgerows around your home. That's fine. Uh, you may also be freezing food. Now, freezing is something that is oh, very popular, has been very popular for about the past 30 years, maybe 40 years. I freeze less and less. I tend to have moved over to bottling and canning food because I get so many power cuts. And although the food doesn't normally spoil, it's a big worry in case it does. So I do freeze, but I freeze using um, a minimum of things. I, pr I prefer to preserve some other way if I can. And pickling, of course. Pickling is good, especially if, like me, you adore pickles. That's wonderful. The more vinegary they are, the, the more I like them. Now, some people may keep animals as part of their homesteading process. Now, animal keeping, okay, cats and dogs, and some cats and dogs are very useful. My cats, I live in the middle of the woods, and I should tell you, you know, a lot of people may wonder why, why I have so many cats. I only have four cats. I have three young cats who are about 18 months old, and I have one older cat who is 16 years old. And the reason I keep cats is, A, I, I really do like cats. I've always had cats all my life, and I get on with them. But they do a good job. I live in the middle of the woods, and what happens in about October every year is every wood mouse that lives in the woods thinks to itself, winter's coming, let's move into the house over there. And they all try to. And the cats keep them under control. They keep them out of the way, they stop them invading the house, and they do a very good job in it on the whole. So some cats do work, and working cats are an important part of a homestead. And dogs too can work. We all know that dogs can be used as sheepdogs and all kinds of dogs around the farm, but dogs can be watchdogs, dogs can be companions, dogs can be helpful in all kinds of ways. So these animals are useful. 
and you can consider them an important part of any homestead setup you have. But there's also other animals. Now, if you've got a big homestead, you're going to keep horses and cattle and sheep and all sorts of things. But even small homesteads manage to keep some chickens or keep some goats, depending on your setup and where you live. And that's fine. That's part of it too. And the chickens will provide you with eggs and manure and the goats will keep you with milk. So that's good. So you may not be able to be totally self-sufficient in what you want from animals if you're a meat eater. Um, you've certainly got to get more than chickens and goats will provide you with. Um, if you're a, a vegetarian, chickens and goats are fine. And even if you don't eat the food, they provide you lots of manure that you can rot down and dig into your vegetable plots and achieve wonderful things with. So that's important. Now, some people may also use their homesteading for dressmaking. Now, the word dressmaking assumes what you're making are dresses. But as we know, people, needlework can involve all sorts of things. It can be household linens, tablecloths, sheets, pillowcases. It can involve making of dresses, of shirts, of all kinds of clothing can be made. And if you're doing that, you are really value adding on the material you buy in. Some people even go further and start weaving their own material. And then you really are talking about homesteading in a very, very impressive way indeed. If you're not doing that, if you're buying in fabric, you're buying fabric fairly cheaply, especially if you look around sales and things for it. Or in Sweden, second-hand stores have loads of fabric where people have purchased fabric to do something and then haven't done it and it ends up being sold off second-hand. And very good it is too. You may also be involved in crochet or knitting, or you may be involved in one of the many arts and crafts activities that you could do, making useful things for your home. Now, with all these things, as well as doing them for the home and the family that lives in the home, um, you might also sell some things. Now, the difference between running your home as a homestead and running your home as a factory is a homestead is primarily producing for your own consumption with maybe some things left over for selling, whereas a factory is producing entirely for selling. So I take it nobody here wants to turn their home into a factory, though you might want to turn it into a homestead. Now, I mentioned back in episode one um, uh, some time ago that once upon a time, everybody was involved in some kind of simple living. Now, I was lucky enough for about 18 years to live in Hay-on-Wye in Wales and right on the border between Wales and England. But if you went down into the um, south of Wales towards Cardiff, there's a, a place there called St Fagans. Now, if you haven't heard of St Fagan on your knowledge of saints, he's a Celtic saint. And the place called St Fagans is a really wonderful place. It's gardens and museums and visitor centres and all kinds of things. It's completely free to visit. So if you live in Wales or somewhere near Wales, go to St Fagans. And one of the things they've got there is a row of terraced houses that were built on the estate at one time. And what they've done is something rather wonderful. They've got this row of terraced houses and they've taken different decades in history since they were built and they've done up the interiors to be as they would have been then. 
So you can go into the first one of these terraced houses and it's sort of 1860. I can't remember the exact age, but it could be 1860. It's something like that. And then you go into the next one along and it's 1900. And then the next one is 1920. And the next one is 1940. And the next one is 1960. And the next one is 1970, 80 and so on. And it's wonderful. And one of the things about that is if you go into the, the house from the end of the 19th century, there you go, it's a very simple interior. It's got uh, downstairs a table and some chairs and a cooking range and some shelves and that's pretty much it. And you realise that people would have been cooking all their food in here and they would have been maybe sleeping there or sleeping in the rooms upstairs but families were big in those days so some people would have had to sleep in the kitchen itself. But if you go through the back door of that house you find that there is an astounding vegetable garden. And being Wales, and, and those of you that live in Wales or visited Wales, know the predominant um, item of the Welsh weather is rain. There's a, a saying in Wales, what do you call it when it rains for 40 days and 40 nights? And the answer is summer. And it's a wonderful country, and the, the lushness and greenness and wonder of Wales is due to that rain. It's got the wonderful scenery, it's got the mountains and the valleys, but it's the rain that clothes that scenery in greenery every year. And in this vegetable garden at St Faggins, there are leeks and cabbages and potatoes and all kinds of wonderful foodstuffs that people would have grown in their homes. But as you move up the time scale, you go from one of these houses to another in this, uh, in this row of houses, the garden begins to disappear. Until by the time you go to the 1960s, what you've got at the back of this house is a bit of lawn with a swing in it. And of course, we all know by the 2000s, chances are people have concreted over their garden or covered their garden in decking or done some other terrible act of vandalism. Now, I do think it's vandalism because those early cottagers that were using their gardens were not only growing food, but they were providing an environment, not maybe a natural environment, but certainly an environment where natural things, weeds, insects, microorganisms would have lived. And by the time you get to lawning it over or decking it over or worst of all, concreting it over, you have destroyed that. You've destroyed it as a food producing um, area and you've turned it into something that's pretty useless. Now I would argue that even though they haven't got a big farm and even though they haven't got um, a vast amount of land, the people living in those houses were homesteaders because they were using the house that they rented they wouldn't have owned it, they would have rented it. The house that they rented, they were using it A, to live in as a family, but B, they were using it as a productive unit and all kinds of gardening and cooking and food preserving and knitting and dressmaking and carpentry used to take place either in that house or the back garden or the shed in the back garden. So I would argue that was homesteading. And I would also argue that the home that you live in today is also a homestead if you choose to make it one. And what you need to do 
to make your house into a homestead is not change anything vastly, but you need to change your mindset about how you think of your home and you need to come up with this idea that the home can be a place of productivity as well as a place of rest and leisure. Now, I have met people who use their home just to live in. I've known people who have a flat and go home at night to sleep and then get up the next day and go out again. They eat out, they take their leisure out, they watch films out, they work out, they go home to sleep. So they're using their home like an hotel room. But other people use their home to do all kinds of wonderful things. So let's come up with this definition finally, shall we? Let us say a homestead is any home where people live and people produce things. Knitting, clothing, carpentry, food, crops, animals, any of those things. I would suggest if you're doing about four of those things, you're pretty well on the road to homesteading. And I think under my definition, you can call yourself a homesteader. And once you start to think of yourself as a homesteader, you will automatically go into ways of thinking how you can make your home into more of a homestead. Now, the problem is with this, you know that saying, one thing leads to another. And certainly what has got me here to living in this house in Sweden is that as soon as you've got something, you want to push it a little bit further. So I started up growing up in London and I left London to get a garden. That's what I did. I moved, first of all, to Banbury in North Oxfordshire. And in Banbury in North Oxfordshire, I was able to have a house with a garden attached to it. And that's where I had children, and that's where I decided there wasn't quite enough space there for me to do what I wanted to do. So I moved, and everywhere I moved, I got a, a different garden. Not always bigger, but sometimes with a different aspect. Some of the gardens were quite small, but I always managed to grow some crops in them. And eventually, I moved to Wales, which gave me a much larger garden, and then... I was working towards this concept of self-sufficiency, of trying to grow as many crops as I could to provide as much food for the year as possible. And from then, that wasn't quite good enough because I wanted a bit more land and I wanted to start doing some forestry things. I wanted to start producing my own firewood. I want to start producing fuel as well as food. So I've moved to Sweden. Now, in many ways, Sweden is much harder to grow food in than Wales is. And the reason is the bit of Sweden I'm in, which is small land, which is down in the southeast corner of Sweden, it's very, very underpopulated here. The population level is much lower than Wales, for instance. And if you think Wales is pretty empty... Um, small land is even more empty. It does have towns and cities, but the countryside in between is pretty much forest with a few farms. Um, the real problem here for grain food is it doesn't rain very much. It rains, but it doesn't rain like it does in Wales. So all the thing about growing crops, it's harder to grow crops. The growing year is shorter. The rainfall 
is less and the soil I'm just after, this is my sixth year here, I'm just getting the soil up to the level of fertility that I would want to be able to grow a decent amount of crops, which I can now do. I think last year was my most productive ever. But I think of it as a homestead, and that does help me to form this affinity with other people that are homesteading, whatever they're set up. Now, some of you listening to this will be living in a flat in... Chicago or you will be living in a small terraced house in Newcastle or you will be living in a modern suburb of Sydney or somewhere you will be living and you will think I can't homestead where I am well you have two options open either you can be a very imaginative and creative person and turn your home into a homestead if you haven't got land you can try and get allotments if you haven't got land you can try some guerrilla gardening and using spaces to grow food if you haven't got a garden you can go foraging you can collect wild food and take it home and preserve it if you haven't got a garden you can grow in pots and window boxes and all sorts of things like that now i'm not pretending that any of these things are easy or that you're going to live and say, oh, I don't need to go to the supermarket this week because I've grown so much in my window box that it's not. Of course not. But you're doing something. And you can look at those other skills and work at those too. And if, like me, you feel at the end of the day that really you would like to do a little bit more and you would like to go a little bit further, then what you can do is think about moving. Think about moving somewhere with a little bit more land uh, a little bit more opportunity to grow things. That might mean moving out of the city centre. It might mean moving into the countryside. And then you might find that the high-paid job that you're doing at the moment isn't there. But the good news is, the better you get at homesteading, the less money you need to earn. So you can accept if there's two of you working to support a house in the city, and you're a couple... Maybe if you move to the countryside, one of you could earn enough money to pay the mortgage or pay the rent, and the other one could devote themselves to homesteading skills. These are some of the ideas that are going to work on over the next few weeks and be able to help you consider how far you want to go in the homesteading game. Now, I, I mentioned Jill Winger earlier on because I'm, I'm a big fan of her podcast called Old Fashioned On Purpose. Old Fashioned On Purpose. If you don't know it, don't stop listening to this. So you can listen to her. Listen to them both. There's plenty of time, especially uh, if you can listen to a podcast while you're doing other things, which is good. Now, what Jill has done uh, a lot of in, in the years that I've been listening is she talks to people that homestead under difficult circumstances. A few examples. She has spoken to homesteaders that are old, that are elderly, that have started homesteading when they're 70. And obviously that brings some challenges, but people manage to rise to those challenges and she's investigated that. She has spoken to people who are homesteading under a degree of ill health. They didn't have ill health when they started homesteading, but, you know, face has dealt them a hard blow and they find themselves having to carry on homesteading while they're disabled. And that works. It's not easy. These people are remarkable. But it does work. 
There are people that have decided to homestead in the extreme north of Canada, uh, where conditions are even harsher than they are here. And they do it, and they manage, and they're being successful. She's even spoken to one homesteader who was very young. I think she was 16 and wanted to homestead on her own and is doing it. So these are incredibly inspiring stories. And if you listen to them, um, you will eventually find somebody and you will say to yourself, if they can do it, I can do it. So the name of that podcast is Old Fashioned On Purpose and do add it to your favourites here. And uh, I'm sure you will be rewarded. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, I hope that you've gained something out of it. And remember, you can find me on social media. My blog, radicalsimpleliving.blogspot.com I always have a job saying that. Um, has links to where you can find me on Facebook, where you can find me on Mastodon, or where you can find me on Twitter. So do get in touch. Raise your questions with me. Tell me what you think of the series. If you'd like me to talk about anything particular, do let me know and I'll do my best to help. It's been really nice to have you here today and to talk with you. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.